Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Addiction Treatment That Works. Our guest this morning is Dr. David Sinclair, coming to us from Finland. Dr. Sinclair has developed the Sinclair Method, which uses naltrexone to extinguish the alcohol addictive behaviors. Good morning, Dr. Sinclair. How are you doing this morning? Hi. Good to be here. Can you explain to us what the Sinclair Method is? Well, let's go back first to what alcoholism or addiction is. The key finding, which has occurred over many years, is that addictions are learned. That in the case of alcohol, each time a person drinks alcohol, uh, for most alcoholics, there is a release of endorphins. And this makes the behavior that was just done, the drinking, the thinking about alcohol, a little bit stronger. All the parts of the brain that contributed to thinking about alcohol, to drinking, become somewhat stronger. The neural pathways become stronger. And there's a genetic factor in this. Some people get a lot of reinforcement. Some people, they don't learn much from it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next time that you're in a similar situation, you think a little bit more about the alcohol. You're a little bit more likely to drink. And if you do drink and have more endorphins released, the behavior gets still stronger. Now, it's a very slow process. Alcohol is not a very good reinforcer. Things like cocaine and amphetamine are much faster. Uh, but over 10, 20 years in people with the right genetics, the behavior gets so strong that the person cannot control it. Uh, one of the sort of sad things in the field is the statement, just say no. For many people, that's fine. If you can say no, you're probably not an alcoholic. Uh, But there is a point at which the the lower-level primitive parts of the brain that are telling you drink are so strong that you cannot control it. And that's sort of a good definition for an alcoholic. So what do you do about a behavior that has been learned so well that you can't control it? Well, the brain has two mechanisms for changing its own wiring. One is this learning and putting things in, new behaviors in, with reinforcement. And the opposite mechanism is called extinction. Uh, Many of the listeners may be familiar with Pavlov and his dogs uh, that he had given, uh, rung a bell and then given food to the dogs and gradually they learned this behavior of salivating when they just heard the bell. But if he had them make the response, rang the bell, and then they salivated, but he didn't give the reinforcement, he didn't give food, then the next day the behavior was a little bit weaker. And when he did it again, the next day after that, it was still weaker. This is a very well-established mechanism in the brain. The best bet is that it literally is burning out the synapses in the neural pathways so that they are no longer able to fire so well. So what you want to do in order to use extinction with alcohol drinking is to have a person be in a situation where they normally drink, they make the behaviors that they normally make, 
and then they don't get the reinforcement from the endorphins. And what we came up with on this was you can cause the endorphins not to have any effect by giving the person an opiate antagonist, like naltrexone. There are three important ones. There's naltrexone, namathen, and naloxone, and all three of them seem to work. Naltrexone is the one that's most common. And you give it before drinking. The person drinks, but then doesn't get the reinforcement. Now, nothing happens immediately. As soon as you, the first time you take the naltrexone, you're feeling quite anxious to get the alcohol. If it's done with rats, where we did this originally, the rats are running up to get their alcohol. They really want it. The naltrexone doesn't stop the craving itself. But the next day, for the rats, they're a little bit slower at coming up. For people, it takes longer, but by the next week, they're not thinking so much about alcohol. They're, by two or three weeks, you start seeing really good effects. But the weakening goes on uh, month after month. In fact, we did a three-year follow-up, and the behavior was even weaker at three years than it was at four months when we usually measure. So this is a process of literally reaching in and taking away those neural pathways that had developed and caused the alcoholism. Now, I should caution that it worked for all the rats, but it doesn't work for all people. Mm -hmm. Apparently, there are different types of alcoholism. For most people, uh, we get a 78% success rate in the clinics that are doing it right. Uh, for most people, the endorphins are the key, or at least an important factor. But there are some people, we found about 12%, who took the naltrexone, used it properly, and it didn't help. Apparently, they learned their alcoholism through some other system. I'm not quite sure what it is. It could be GABA. Uh, before the show, we were talking about smoking. It goes through another system, and we don't really know. But we can treat successfully the vast majority of the alcoholics. Okay, is this being used uh, as a standard in Finland? Pretty much so. Um, the problem, the, the FDA approved naltrexone for alcoholism after clinical trials at the University of Pennsylvania and at Yale, uh, Stefano Malley's group at Yale, and Valpicelli and Chuck O'Brien's group at Pennsylvania. And they got very nice results. It was approved by the FDA in 1995, but unfortunately, most doctors used it the wrong way. They told the people, don't drink anything and just take the medicine, and it only works when you pair it up with the alcohol drinking. So we noticed the same thing was starting in Finland, and so a group, I was consultant for them, uh, helped start a chain of clinics, contrail clinics in Finland, and they expanded and had clinics all over the country and in several other countries. And now the uh, private system, the public system is coming in using the same thing. So this is becoming, it should be everybody practically, but it is becoming the standard here in Finland. And there have been tens of thousands who have been treated with it. 
Well, I tried naltrexone myself in the 1990s, the way it is usually prescribed in the United States, and it had no effect for me at all. Uh, You're lucky. If you use it the way it's usually prescribed, it can be worse than placebo. Uh, the clinical trial that we did in Finland uh, actually had two different groups, two different protocols for giving naltrexone. Uh, one group was with abstinence. They were told, do not drink any alcohol and take your naltrexone every morning. And the other group was done so extinction was possible, and they uh, were told, before you drink, an hour before drinking, take an naltrexone pill. In the one where extinction was possible, we had beautiful results, highly significant improvement over the placebo group that had the same protocol but no no naltrexone in it. But in the group that had the abstinence protocol, they actually tend to do do worse than the placebo group. And uh, there's a reason for it. Actually, it can become a significant factor. And uh, this has led many people, uh, particularly in America where it's widely misused, to conclude that naltrexone, I won't say it bluntly the way I've heard it, but it is not worth much. Uh, only because it's been used the wrong way. Mm. I've been keeping a database of all of the clinical trials. I think it's up to 86. I forget the latest number. But it is looking at those clinical trials in which extinction was possible. And almost without exception, the results have been highly significant. In those trials in which, and there are about 35 of them here, in which extinction was not possible, for instance, giving naltrexone in a hospital where there wasn't any alcohol available, and they've almost all been unsuccessful. Another factor in this, many of the clinical trials start off with detoxification, and they say, okay, now don't drink anything and take the naltrexone every morning. Now, if naltrexone really were working without extinction, uh, just taking away your craving, then the ones getting the naltrexone would take longer before they fell off the wagon and started drinking again than placebo ones. In all the clinical trials, this has not been found. Uh, It doesn't help if you're giving it as an anti-craving medicine in itself. You have to use it the right way. There there are actually two different um, mechanisms involved. I, I've mentioned the extinction. There's another thing that we see. Uh, it's not nearly as reliable, but when people are starting to drink uh, after abstinence or when they've been trying not to, there often is a first drink phenomena, and one drink leads to a binge. And we found that taking naltrexone shortens the how long these binges are. And this can happen at any time during the treatment. Uh, people were calling in and saying they were shocked to find that uh, normally they'd finished the entire bottle, and they now woke up and there was half a bottle waiting for them on the table. Uh, this is a nice thing that happens, 
shortening the binge. Um, we're not exactly sure how it happens. Best bet is that it involves a dopamine reaction related to this. Remains to be seen. But it is something that shows up in animals and shows up in alcoholics frequently, but it's not a strong effect. Extinction is a very powerful phenomenon. It literally takes away what is causing the drinking. Uh, one of the most phenomenal things, uh, it, maybe you saw this, there was a documentary on CNN uh, with one of the patients who was in the naltrexone trials. I think his name was Wilson. Grand fellow, is a very enjoyable fellow and talking about his old drinking and uh, accidentally sort of his wife got him into the trial and then now it's many years after he went through it successfully and the amazing thing to him was that he doesn't think about alcohol anymore and we hear this over and over again from patients now can you imagine how do you change what somebody thinks about if I tell you to stand on a street corner and not think of a Russian bear on roller skates for half an hour, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. But here is a process that manages to change what a person is thinking about. An alcoholic, particularly if he's deprived, is thinking about alcohol almost all the time. Uh, that's They wake up in the morning and that's what they're thinking about. And after the treatment has been going on, because you have removed these circuits from the brain that were causing the thinking, uh, the interest in alcohol just goes away. And it doesn't depend upon the medicine being in the brain. Uh, the circuits are gone regardless of whether there's any more naltrexone. So uh, usually when we're measuring and asking people about their craving, they haven't taken the naltrexone for the day and so they're saying it without naltrexone but the changes remain they're not dependent upon whether the naltrexone is present or not the naltrexone plus the drinking together cause the changes and then they remain permanently uh, permanently may be too strong of a word because any behavior which is extinguished can be relearned and so if you start drinking again without the naltrexone then you will relearn uh, the behaviors that you extinguished uh, you can have some rapid things usually what happens is that it is a slow process over six months uh, for the craving to go back up for you to relearn the behavior but as long as you are not drinking without the naltrexone, uh, then it is a permanent uh, change in your behavior. Okay. Is naltrexone a pill or an injection, or how is it taken? Both. <laughs> uh, the way that we've been giving it in Finland is as a pill, 50 milligram pill. Uh, there is another way of doing this. Uh, Alchemies has developed Vivitrol, which is a sustained release injection. So you take an injection once a month. Um, in some cases, this is better. 
uh, if you have a patient who doesn't want to take the naltrexone. In our experience in Finland, uh, we were dealing with people who came in and wanted to have control over their drinking, and we had quite good compliance. Uh, we weren't telling them to do anything difficult, like stop drinking. That's hard to do. Mm -hmm. uh, we were telling them, drink all you want to, uh, but take the naltrexone pill first. And that we got something like 90% compliance. Um, but you don't take the pill all the time. You only take the pill on those days when you're beginning to when you're planning on drinking. So in the beginning of the treatment, that is almost every day. But by three months, it's down to a couple times a week. Uh, in the three month, the three year follow up, it was down to uh, less than once a week. Many people are not drinking at all, but those who are drinking, it's. Saturday night, sauna night here in Finland, and you take the naltrexone and then have a beer. So one thing that is different here is that the person does not need to become abstinent. That is not the goal for most of the patients. In the clinics, we ask them, what would you like to have as a goal? If I remember correctly, it was 3% who wanted abstinence. And all of the rest wanted uh, more control over the drinking, uh, being able to drink in small uh, amounts that wouldn't get out of hand. And now, I will say this. If you are not taking naltrexone, um, don't try going for social drinking. Uh, it, the worst results we got were the placebo group with controlled drinking. That did not work. But if you are taking naltrexone, then social drinking is an acceptable goal, and it works quite well. Okay. Uh, when I read Roy Escaba's book, he talks about charting while you're taking the naltrexone. How important is it to uh, write down the number of your drinks that you're doing while you're doing the Sinclair Method? Well, it depends upon whether you're talking about for them or for me. <laughs> uh, for those of us who were developing it, it was an extremely important thing that they wrote down the data and wrote it down it accurately because that was the best way we knew what was happening. Um, it probably is a very good thing to do. Uh, other people have done studies in which has been shown that if merely keeping track of your behavior is a good way to have more control over it. Uh, we have not checked this in our own trials, but I'm sure it is a, a factor that helps to make it more successful. Okay. Can naltrexone be used for any addictions other than alcohol? Um, okay. That's the exciting part that we're into now. I mean, the alcohol was back 1985 when I first got the idea for it, and I've been convinced that it works there since 1995. But... The same general type of treatment with naltrexone or nalmefen or naloxone should work for any addiction that is caused by the opiate system. And uh, actually, this has been proven quite conclusively. The simplest one is simply taking opiates. And there's a rather similar story here about the importance of the protocol. Uh, this is 
a case that doesn't involve me. I wasn't in the morphine field and actually didn't learn about this until after we'd had the same type of experiences with alcohol. There was a huge clinical trial sponsored by NIDA in America, published by Renault, first in 1978, and then by NIDA in 1980. <coughs> Excuse me. And the doctors who set this trial up were not thinking about extinction. And so they gave the patients a little card that said, do not use any opiates, heroin, morphine, methadone. Uh, if you use a small dose while you're on the medication, you will feel no pleasure. So don't bother doing it. If you take a large dose, you will die. This does not encourage the patients to shoot up while they're on naltrexone. When they analyzed the entire population that they studied, there was not a single benefit of naltrexone over placebo. But then they looked closer. There was a subgroup, I think it was 17 in the naltrexone group, 18 in placebo, that disobeyed the instructions. They actually took an opiate, methadone, uh, heroin, while they were on the medication. And there the results were quite different. Uh, after they had been using it for a while, the uh, ones on naltrexone lost interest in it. They stopped doing it. They ended up with significantly fewer urine positives for it. Uh, measures of craving at the end of the treatment, their craving was significantly lower. Uh, the reduction in their craving and in their use followed an extinction curve. And the author, Renault in this group, uh, concluded uh, on the basis of theorizing by Abrams that it worked by extinction. And if it's extinction, you have to make the response. So this was very nice data for how you could get good results using naltrexone for heroin addiction. If you look at the package inserts that come with naltrexone today, they tell you if you are using this for an opiate addict, inform the patient do not use any opiates while you are on the medication. If you take a small dose, it will give you no pleasure. If you take a large dose, it will kill you or send you into a coma. But they don't bother mentioning that the scientific evidence showed it only works if you disobey these instructions. It was 1980. How many heroin addicts have we lost in the meantime? Because nobody told the doctors or the patients the right way to use it. Now, there have been some trials recently, one with uh, Vivitrol, in which uh, they were the people were using it, uh, using opiates at the same time as taking naltrexone, and they're getting nice results. But it certainly will work there if you use it the right way. Uh, another thing it works on is with amphetamine addiction. At the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, they've done a beautiful set of studies from starting at animals, open label, on up to double-blind placebo-controlled studies showing that naltrexone blocks the reinforcement from amphetamine 
and is effective in safe and effective in treating of the addiction. Uh, there is suggestive evidence for the same thing with cocaine. Uh, one trial very nicely seems to show it works, uh, but more needs to be done on that. There is a rather large body of studies with gambling, and naltrexone works quite nicely there, so does nalmefen. Uh, again, however, you have to use it the right way. There was a sort of a sad thing here because the doctors who first started giving it for gambling did not realize that it worked by extinction. And extinction is a slow thing. It isn't like uh, you take the pill and you don't want to gamble. There's no effect in the beginning. You don't see anything for maybe three weeks. And then gradually, over each trial of gambling and not getting any reinforcement, the behavior gets weaker. Well, these doctors did not understand that it was going to be a slow process, so they found no effect at the end of one week. So they doubled the dose to 100 milligrams. And when they got no result at the end of two weeks, they went up to 150 grams, milligrams. And if it didn't have any result after that, they started getting results, as I mentioned, with alcohol at about three or four weeks. They were up on the average to 183 milligrams by this time. And when you go to high doses, you start having side effects and damage to the liver. Uh, eventually, they went back and did a proper dose response curve and found that the effect increased gradually over time and that it didn't make any difference with the dose, that all you got was more side effects by increasing the dose. 50 milligrams blocks all the receptors. So we think that it does work for gambling. The most exciting thing, okay, what we're doing right now, if this works for behaviors or substances that release endorphins, it should also work for people who are, quote, addicted to foods that release endorphins, like sweets release endorphins, fatty foods release endorphins, salty foods do. Uh, I might just mention we have special rats here in Finland that were bred to love alcohol, and they have a great opiadergic system. They love sweets because they get more endorphins from it, and they love sour things more, and they love salty things more. Uh, just because they have this better developed system. So there's pretty good evidence that people who have developed an addiction to these endorphin-releasing foods show binge eating, often leading to obesity. And in animals and in laboratory studies, we've been able to extinguish this behavior. We're starting a clinical trial here in Finland right now. We've got the patients all selected. We finally got the last papers in for the regulatory authorities yesterday, oh, today. <laughs> and so we're all ready to start this clinical trial. Um, might just put in a, a little mention here. This one is being supported by Light Lake Therapeutics, which is the company behind it. It's being done here at the National Institute for Health and Welfare, which has done the clinical trials before the government agency. But uh, the ones who are bringing this out commercially are Light Lake Therapeutics.
So it's going to be a six-month uh, double-blind placebo-controlled study, but not using naltrexone. When a person is binge eating, the binge usually lasts only for about two hours. You don't want to have the antagonist present all the time. Um, if it's there when you're not making the behavior, there's the possibility that it can extinguish other things. Uh, for instance, in one Wisconsin trial uh, on alcohol, they found that it extinguished the liking for sweets, which is the other thing we're treating. Uh, in the Swedish clinical trial for alcoholism, they found that it extinguished liking of sweets and also interest in sex, which is not something we want to extinguish. So we want to make it precise. Naloxone has a half-life only of about one hour. So if you give a dose of it, it's only around for about two hours. So you can make the period when the receptors are blocked match exactly when the people are making the response. If you try using naltrexone for eating, and it's lasting usually about 24 hours, then there's a danger that you can extinguish things like exercising, which also releases endorphins, or healthy eating, or sexual behaviors, or uh, all kinds of other things that are healthy alternative behaviors. So the only trouble with naloxone is that you can't take it as a pill. So it is going to be used as a nasal spray. The people have a nasal spray with naloxone in it, and if they're going to binge, then uh, they spray it once in one nostril, once in the other. And uh, if you're taking a pill, it takes a while for it to go down through the stomach and be absorbed and such. With the nasal spray, within a minute or so, it is up into the brain. So you can start the behavior immediately, and then after uh, about two hours, you no longer have the blockage. Thank you, Dr. Just mentioned something we here. are now timing out. Oh. Okay, we just ended. Thank you. Okay. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.